The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Uh, the reading is from Matthew 1, 1 through 17 today, if you're following along. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah and Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may be seated. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you for not laughing during, uh, yeah, she, she was having trouble keeping a straight face during Zerubbabel. <laughs> now, let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that we get to read all about it, that we have the details, that we even know his genealogy better than we know our own. Thank you that he is everything we need. Please show us that more clearly right now. In Christ's name, amen. So welcome to the first day of our deep dive into the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be here for quite some time. I hope that's exciting for you. Likely you've spent time in the Gospel of Matthew before, but I hope that this sermon series will make Matthew feel less like a book to study and more like a friend. Maybe that sounds weird. Uh, what I mean is that I hope you'll start to feel the themes and the undercurrents and that you'll get caught up in the storyline. I hope that you'll see the descriptions more vividly than before. I hope that you'll hear the words of Jesus more profoundly than before and you'll see the wisdom and faithfulness and power of God more clearly than ever. I hope that the Gospel of Matthew becomes a place where you meet God, causing you to worship. 
But for any of that to happen, we're going to have to start at the very beginning. And some of you may be rolling your eyes because for some of you, many of you, most of you, this is the fourth sermon you've heard from me on this genealogy. Because during Advent in 2021, we had three sermons on these very 17 verses. So I'm just going to review those three sermons for you in two minutes. Note takers, get that pen ready. Real quick, here we go. The first sermon was Jesus, son of women, where we highlighted that here there are, there are four women described, five if you include Mary, and they are exalted by their very inclusion in this genealogy because ancient genealogies were a, a male-only sort of thing. So, um, but Matthew mentions them because they were women who developed great courage and faith as God used them through horrendous circumstances. And that's a reminder for us that Jesus came for such as these. Whatever vulnerabilities that, that women especially may carry with them, Jesus came for such as these, and he is not ashamed to call them his ancestors. And secondly, we thought about Jesus, son of kings, and we were looking primarily at verses 6 through 11. And this ancient line of Israelite kings was supposed to rule in God's way, but instead, at least half of them were just downright wicked. And even the good ones, David, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, they had some incredibly tragic flaws and left mixed results at best. So Jesus came from such as these, but was not ashamed of them, but would fulfill the righteous calling that they never could. And then third, we thought about Jesus, son of exiles, focusing on verses 12 through 16. And these were really unknown people who had suffered as a consequence of Israel's sin. And then they, they had gone into exile in Babylon, but they had kept believing God's promises. And then embracing their obscurity, they resettled the land, and they looked for the day of the Messiah. And we thought about how actually, you know, we are all exiles from the garden we are all suffering the consequences of our sins as well as the fallout from the evil actions of others. And Jesus came for such as us. He's not ashamed to call us his family, but in fact, as we'll learn from verse 21 next week, he comes to save his people from their sins. Well, that's all helpful and relevant material to keep in mind, but today we're going to look at these verses through still another different lens. We're going to look at them through the lens of the three titles that are used about Jesus in verse 1. He is the Christ, he is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. And we're going to do that because verse 1 isn't just the intro to the genealogy. Uh, it's actually the intro to the whole book of Matthew. And the word translated genealogy here, it's, it might be better translated origin. So what Matthew is doing is he's mirroring the Greek of um, the Greek translation of Genesis 2.8, which says, this is the book of the Genesis of the heavens and earth when they were created. And that's the same word that's used here, genesis. So Matthew wants us to pay attention to this work of his, this book of Matthew. He wants us to pay attention to what we're about to read to see that in some ways the old story is starting over because here in Jesus is a new creation. So the book starts with this reference to Genesis. And then, how does the book end? In chapter 28, Jesus speaks of the end of the age. So it's all-encompassing. And this list of names is going to prepare us for the events of the book of Matthew that are 
he wants us to know are just as important as the creation of the world. And those events that Matthew will relate to us in the months to come, we are describing as rise of the cosmic king. That's what we're seeing as the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, Scott's just got Christ the king on his brain. But no, I want you to see that Christ the king is what Matthew uniquely wants to show us. And we can see that even from this genealogy. The three terms that are used of Jesus in verse 1, you'll see them them separating out the three sections of the genealogy. So verse 2, Abraham starts that section. Verse 6, David starts that section. Verse 16, the title Christ ends that third section and is the conclusion that all this is driving toward, that Jesus is the Christ. But what is Christ? What does that mean? The The Greek word is Christ. The Hebrew word is Messiah. It simply means anointed one, the one who would be uniquely empowered by God. So that is a noun, but without more definition, it kind of functions like an adjective. He's anointed, okay? And this Christ is the son of Abraham. Abraham means father of nations, and God had promised him that in his offspring, all the clans of the earth would be blessed. So this son of Abraham would be cosmic in his influence, but that's an adjective too. He is anointed by God in power. His influence will be cosmic in scope, but what is he? Son of David. In other words, the coming king. Jesus is the anointed cosmic king. This is how Matthew presents the Messiah or Christ. And so, implication, Jesus will have all authority. His good reign will extend to all nations. And because he is divinely anointed, he requires all allegiance. And these are our main points for today. And these are our main points for the entire gospel of Matthew. All authority, all nations, all allegiance. If it seems strange to you to start a book with a genealogy, you should know that actually in ancient Greco-Roman biographies, this was quite common. They'd have a stylized genealogy of the hero right at the start. Uh, now try to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. Life was hard. For centuries now, your people had been ruled by others. First, there was, when you came, you came out of Babylon, there was the Persians in charge. Then there was the Greeks. Now it's the Romans. And the Roman oppression had left scars on the land and on the people. And then there's messes of other kinds too. The religious leaders seemed to contradict themselves. Some of them had sold out to the Romans. Uh, Israel seemed to be splintering 400 years without a word of prophecy. 400 years, just like, if you remember, the Israelites in Egypt had been waiting 400 years. Could this be a time for a new and final deliverer to appear. So it was a time of great messianic expectation. And into this ancient people with ancient promises comes one whose genealogy checks out. Going back 1,000 years to the quintessential king, David. Going back a full 2,000 years to Abraham, the recipient of God's first promises to the Hebrew people. So this is bigger than the Kennedys. This is bigger than Napoleon. This is bigger than even the longest-lasting royal line of emperors or pharaohs because this royal line lasted for centuries and then seemed gone for centuries 
and then returned exactly as promised, exactly as God had promised, who had established the line of David in the first place. So let's start by considering what does it mean that Jesus is the son of David? Even though David is, in one sense, just a piece of the puzzle that leads us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, in another sense, David, specifically here, he's called David the King, he appears right in the middle of everything. And the reason is because David is the controlling framework for this whole genealogy. And two years ago, we talked about this, how this genealogy, it actually, if you, if you check it against the rest of Scripture, it leaves out at least four generations that are verifiable through the book of Chronicles. What's up with that? Is Matthew trying to pull one over on us? No, and he wouldn't be pulling anything over on anybody because first century Jews knew Chronicles way better than we do. So he's not trying to trick anyone. Well, why does he leave out some? He's trying to get to the number 14. He's choosing to reflect only 14 generations in one sequence because he's crafting this genealogy poetically. Remember I said that biographies would start with a stylized genealogy. So he's crafting this genealogy poetically using the Jewish art of gematria. And we talked about how gematria assigns a number value to each Hebrew letter and then poetically reinforces certain meanings by having them reflected in numbers as well as words. If this seems scary, this is pretty much the only time you'll ever have to think about this in, in Bible interpretation. This is the place where it's clear and it's just right there for us. So there's no hidden meaning. Don't get caught up in gematria conspiracy theories. It's quite simple what Matthew is doing. He's just repeating David directly and indirectly, using words, using numbers. David, David, David. He wants it to get into our brains that Jesus is the forever king, the greater David who was to come. And he's going to keep doing that. Next chapter, or later in this chapter, Joseph is called son of David. He's by an angel. He's, he's emphasizing it. God is emphasizing it. And then um, the first prophecy quoted in chapter 2 is from Micah 5, speaking of a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So David, the Davidic line of kings, is so important for how Matthew is going to show us Jesus. So the point of verse 17 isn't so much about the exact number of generations. But instead, the point is, don't you see that all of the generations that came before were perfectly leading right to this moment when Jesus, the son of David, would appear. But why son of David? I mean, I'm descended from a man named Angus who was born in 1735, and you probably don't care in the least. Even if he had been king of Scotland, you probably still wouldn't care. But King David was unique. Unique because of his zeal for God, and unique because of God's promises to him. Regarding his zeal, David was called by God, a man after my own heart. He cried out to God fervently, like we can see in the Psalms. He rejoiced in God with all his heart, like we see when he danced before the ark when it was being brought into Jerusalem. He cared about what God and not people thought. He trusted in God radically. You could see that when he challenged Goliath when later he refused to take matters with Saul into his own hands. He trusted God. And we see David's courage to fight relentlessly against the enemies of God's people. We see his passionate concern for justice. He protected the weak. He sought to establish righteousness. And we even see the depths of his own repentance. 
when faced with his own sin. That's not something we would have to think about with the son of David. But for David himself, it shows us that David wanted the right things. And he is the paradigm for a faithful king who would rule according to Yahweh's desires. But even more striking than David's character or David's faithfulness are the promises that David received. In 1 Chronicles 17, the Lord told David, I will raise up your offspring after you and one of your own sons, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And it soon became clear that Solomon could fulfill this prophecy in part but it still awaited total fulfillment from a greater son who would build a house greater than Solomon's temple and whose throne would truly be eternal. So then paired with that prophecy are prophetic visions like in the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, for example. They speak of a victorious king whose good rule would be total with God putting his enemies under his feet. And this vision of the Davidic king actually goes back further than David. Huh? How's that possible? Well, in Genesis 49.10, the patriarch Jacob, or Israel, is dying, and he issues this blessing on the tribe from which David would emerge 800 years later, and from which Jesus would emerge 1,000 years after that. Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Do we have this view of Jesus, one where all authority belongs to him? If you don't see him as having all authority, then you're going to be easily shaken when hard circumstances come. You'll be tempted to think that your king doesn't really have your back. Now, we would never vocalize that, but we can sometimes treat him like an impotent sort of king. Well, I'm sure dear Jesus would do something about it if he could, but these circumstances are just a little beyond his purview. And so then we prove that we're thinking and feeling that because we run to anxiety and we run to frenetic activity instead of defaulting to prayer. But the truth of the matter is that your king doesn't need to feebly try to react to history because your king governs history. He already knows what you're facing, and he has purposes in all that's about to happen next. So will you not speak to him? Will you not boldly make requests of the one who actually has authority to act? Or we may know that he has all authority, but maybe we don't trust that his is a good reign the infinite goodness of which could only partially be reflected through David's reign in the golden age of Israel. So when health crises or relational struggles or career disappointments come, do you default to the feeling that your king is calloused and indifferent? That's not the truth about David's heir. In Psalm 72, Solomon wrote this about the ideal Davidic king. He said, He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. And Jeremiah 23 also says this, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So in what area of life do you need to remember that our good king has all authority? That he hears your pleas for relief, that he has pity and saves the life of the needy, that he is establishing justice and righteousness, including within you. He will deal wisely and compassionately with you as you take refuge in him. Now, first century Israel trusted that the coming of the son of David, the forever king, would be very, very good. And they knew that it would be a big deal. Part of why Genesis 49 and Psalm 2 say that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples is because the son of David is also the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. Why, why do we need to mention that? I mean, if Jesus is a son of David, of course he's also a son of Abraham. Yes, but the point is he is the son of Abraham. In Genesis, the Lord had changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And in chapter 12, Yahweh said to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 22, the global promise is repeated. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 2,000 years had passed. The nation that descended from Abraham had been great, though the deportation to Babylon after that, they were far less impressive on the world scene. But they were back in the land, and they had been blessed in many ways. Provision, protection, a certain amount of revelation from God that no other nation had. But where was that multiplication, like the sand on the seashore? Where was that possessing the gates of your enemies? Where was the blessing of all the nations in the earth? It was about to come in Jesus, the son of Abraham. And this is emphasized in the genealogy through the inclusion of Rahab and Ruth. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was an inhabitant of Jericho before Israel took the land. And yet she sought refuge in the God of Israel. And she helped the spies that were sent by Joshua. And so she was folded into the people of Israel. Little did she know that one day she would be the ancestor of kings. And even the king of kings. Well, shortly after this, Ruth from Moab a nation that was one of Israel's enemies would also seek refuge in the God of Israel and be woven into his story. And in fact, her great-grandson would be David the king. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we, we will see that Jesus is king of the Jews, but we'll also see that this thing is going global right from the start. The first worshipers of Jesus in Matthew are likely from Babylon, of all ironies. So whether your neighbors are from Missouri or Bangladesh or Mecca or Beijing, you can be certain that Jesus is for them. 
because he is the son of Abraham. And in him alone, they will find the blessing they need. As we see in Matthew that that Jesus has all authority over all nations, I hope that's going to embolden you to play your role in the making of disciples from all nations. And we want to grow in our faithfulness to bear witness about our cosmic king because his reign is over all, whether people know it or not. And we love others enough to invite them into the only realm of lasting peace and joy and beauty. And we love him enough to serve by spreading his royal pronouncement of clemency and good news of welcome through the finished work of his cross. So yes, it can be scary to put ourselves out there, but he has promised to be with us. In Jesus, the family of Abraham is spreading, and we're meant to be part of that process. And then that family is spreading to include all nations. You know, in the first century, the average Christian was Middle Eastern. In the few centuries after that, the average Christian lived around the Mediterranean, maybe Southern Europe, maybe Northern Africa. And then in the most recent centuries, all of Europe and North America and Australia have been at the forefront of the movement of the gospel, but increasingly, the average devout Christian is most likely to live in South America or Africa or Asia where churches are multiplying at an exponential rate. So we need to ask the question, how could we get involved in Abraham's blessing spreading to all nations? Four weeks from now, January 7th, I'm going to introduce you to a couple. Their names are Dylan and Sandy, and they're originally from China. Dylan wasn't a Christian before he came to the U.S. in 2009 to work as a software engineer. Sandy had become a Christian through an illegal house church in China. And the two of them were married in 2015, and now they're being sent out as missionaries from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chicago. And they're going to an unreached Muslim people group in Central Asia. Isn't that beautiful? And they want to meet you because they want us to partner with them through prayer support. So I want to challenge you to get to know these new friends in the King's work and to pray faithfully for them because Jesus is the son of Abraham and his family is in the business of bringing that that blessing to all nations. And so this genealogy takes God's promises to Abraham and takes God's promises to David and then weaves them into our understanding of Christ or Messiah, God's anointed one. Jesus is not merely a king just like David. He's something more. Jesus is not merely an influencer of many nations like Abraham. He's something much more. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God to bring about in power the purposes of God himself. And that means that Jesus requires all allegiance. This is our third point. Jesus has all authority over all nations and requires all allegiance. There are many places we could go to see this point, but I want to look at Psalm 2. So the first two Psalms are really like a two-part intro to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 starts with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then an image is drawn for us of this sort of person who loves good and hates evil. They're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that it does, in all that he does, he prospers. And then in Psalm 2, the scene changes altogether, but this psalm ends with the statement, blessed is a certain type of person, just like the first psalm started, so it's bookends. How does the second psalm describe the blessed person, the person who loves good and hates evil? What are they doing in the second psalm that confirms they are the type of person who is blessed? They're taking refuge. They are taking refuge from someone, and they are taking refuge in that same person, God's anointed one. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You could translate that Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Skipping to the end, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, this wording is offensive to many. Maybe you're even struggling with it. Why should I fear my king or tremble in his presence? I've actually grown to love this command. Rejoice with trembling. And I think you actually have grown to love it too. It's beautiful because whenever there's great power in play, this is our reality we all actually crave this feeling. Our minds can't grasp how rejoicing and trembling could happen at the same time, but they, they totally can. Like when you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or when you're riding a skilled horse at full speed against perilous ter- across perilous terrain or when you're on a, some crazy carnival ride or when my five-year-old is so overwhelmed by a new experience that he joyfully wets his pants great power, a great powerful experience is, if it's safe, sorry, it's not going to be safe. If, if there's great power, it's never, you're never going to feel like there's no risk here. You're never going to feel that way. But if it's good, and if you're on the right side of it, then your trembling heart settles in a place of joy. And Psalm 2 closes by telling us to kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And the summary statement, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We are required to take refuge in him, not anywhere else. God's anointed one, his Messiah or Christ, requires all allegiance. Now we live in a society that it doesn't really appreciate authority of any kind. If we were to press people for what kind of leader do you want, most people would say that they want someone who can protect them and who could defend the oppressed. But could that person be a king? 
hmm, that doesn't really sound appealing to us. Sounds too brutal, too patriarchal. So how does it sound to you? The thought of a king anointed with power from God, bearing all authority over all nations, requiring all allegiance, does that thought scare you or comfort you? How we answer that question probably tells us more about ourselves than it does about Jesus. Well, let's see an example from Scripture of how it should make us feel. In Psalm 2, it's it's the kings and the rulers of the earth who had the most to lose and, and who had the most to fear from the Lord's anointed one. But in some sense, they were never who he was for. Across Matthew's gospel, we're gonna see that Jesus came for the humble, not the self-assured. He came for the simple, not those who think they are wise. He came for the weak, not the powerful. He came for the contrite, not the squeaky clean. Shortly before the time of King David, we read about a woman named Hannah. Her life was hard. She lived in constant relational strife, and she'd been unable to have children, which in that culture could leave a woman scorned and destitute in her old age. Hannah is so distressed that as she's praying at the tabernacle, the priest actually thought she was drunk. Now, what would a down-and-out person like that think about having an anointed king? What if I, what if I told her, don't worry, an anointed king is going to come in you know, generations from now. Well, probably that's the last thing she would need, right? Don't be so sure. God answered Hannah's desperate prayers, and she gives birth to this baby who would become the prophet Samuel. And listen to some of the things she says in her song of thanksgiving. She says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him are actions weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And she goes on to keep speaking of how this good God reverses oppression and honors the poor, and she talks about how one day that will happen in a final way. Now, keep in mind, this is before there were any kings in Israel. But she ends her prayer saying, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. Now, if Hannah could see her need for an anointed king and take refuge in him as the champion of all her best longings, I think we can too. In the confession earlier this morning from Luke chapter one, we read the words of Mary. And you may have noticed that her song of celebration there, she borrowed many words and concepts from Hannah's song. Because Hannah was, in one sense, a prophetic picture of the people of God waiting for the son that they desperately needed. And it wasn't only Hannah and Mary who understood the need for the anointed son of Abraham and David. Jesus came as an answer to the hopes and fears of all the years, which can be imagined so vividly through just looking at his genealogy. The people in his family tree were people just like us. They were people who had worshipped what's fake, who had engaged in violence, harmed their loved ones, taken what wasn't theirs, prostituted themselves, neglected their kids. 
generally let evil grow on their watch. And in Jesus' family tree, you'll find people just like us who were broken, downtrodden, exiled, forgotten, abused, imprisoned. We know all of these stories because God wanted to make it clear that Christ would not be shocked and appalled by sinners and sufferers like this. They were his very family. And if they would take refuge in him, these are exactly the sort of people who would flourish as trees planted by streams of water with rich leaves and bearing abundant fruit. And what about you? Is there some shady past or present that you've determined you have to leave hidden? Is there some overwhelming despair that you're convinced has to isolate you from others who could never understand? And does that make the arrival of a king feel threatening or irrelevant at best? Well, Jesus himself had an isolating and compromising situation in his life. Verse 16 that of whom was born, in verse 16, the whom is feminine, it refers to Mary. Jesus was born of Mary. But in this long list of fathers and sons, it does not say that Joseph fathered Jesus because he didn't. And the misunderstanding surrounding that, that would stay with Jesus his whole life. In John chapter 8, Jesus' Jewish opponents land this low blow. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Implication, we've heard some rumors from Nazareth about when you were conceived. He understands what they're implying. And he says, I honor my father, capital F, God, but you dishonor me. So here at the end of the genealogy, Matthew wants us to remember that Christ is one who from the very beginning will see past human views of acceptability and legitimacy and he is willing to identify with the most despised, with the outcast, with the misunderstood. He comes for us. The anointed one is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And only one with the authority of a king can do it. And only one anointed by the divine can do it, and only one destined to bless all nations can do it regardless of what human barriers are put up in his way. But that blessing comes to one type of person, those who are his, those who have taken refuge in him, those who have given him all their allegiance. So we end this passage and we start the book of Matthew with a question. Will the son of Abraham the son of David, the Christ, have your total allegiance. I'm not asking if he'll have your perfect service. We'll all be growing in obedience for the rest of our lives. But will he have the total allegiance of your heart? You know, in those, those movies when a, the good king rides up and then the, the hearts of the, the people just rises with his appearing and goes with him, even if he's leading them through dark places. That's the allegiance we need to have to our good king. Think about whether your life is truly lived for Christ or for yourself. Think about what aspect of your life maybe you have been quietly, indirectly, but persistently, you've been saying no to his rule. Think about how you respond when you're confronted with something from his word. 
Do you respond with apathy? Are you shifty, non-committal, or is there joyful action, loving the good edicts of our King? As the Gospel of Matthew continues, we're going to see that the allegiance that he requires it involves what we say, what we look at, how we spend our money, how we relate to others, what thoughts we fixate on, what we hope in. Ultimately, it's asking the question, who is our real master? So let's just take a moment now. Let's give you a moment of silence to take stock of any mixed allegiances in your life. Lord, we renounce these mixed allegiances. We want our hearts to be yours alone. So as we approach Christmas and celebrating the coming of the King, let's each renew an oath of loyalty with our whole life to Christ our King. Tell him that you are fully surrendered to his good pleasure. And if you mean that, if you really mean that, then you can expect this Advent season to look very different. Maybe frighteningly so, maybe excitingly so, but definitely blessedly so. Let's pray. Jesus the Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, we honor you as the one truly good king and the only king anointed with divine power to transform our lives and to transform the world. So we do declare that our allegiance belongs to you alone. We ask that you would unfold before us new paths of faithful service, that you would excite our hearts with vistas previously unseen as we grasp your majestic kingship and its implications for our lives. So Lord, we ask that you'd use the whole book of Matthew in this way in our lives, that you would show us yourself more clearly, that you would draw us into worship for your glory. Amen.